Okay, we are in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start reading from verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far, far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he, was solemnly, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who received the word were baptized that day, and there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Okay, so Peter had preached this message that we had talked about last week, where he kept testifying over and over again, this Jesus, who you crucified, we have seen him risen from the dead. That just as the scriptures have said, he would not suffer decay. And he said, this Jesus is the one that, we were ta- that was talked about in the scriptures. This is the one you killed. And then he goes, they, they were so, it says, pierced to the heart in verse 37. They were so impacted by this. It was like a pounding in their hearts. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he he says in verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So this wasn't the only message that we have. I mean, these words weren't weren't the totality of Peter's message that morning. It was 9 o'clock in the morning, we know from the beginning of this message. But it went on longer than this because it says, with many other words, he solemnly testified. So there were many things that Peter was talking about. But he says to them, repent, each of you. This is a pattern. In our lives, there's a day of repentance when we repent and turn to the Lord. And then there's a continual repentance that we go through when, we, when, when things are exposed to us. But then he, said, he tells them, he exhorts them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism for them did something beyond what it does for us. There were, there were several baptisms in that day. There was proselyte baptism, and proselyte baptism was actually something that, that was fairly common even in that day. And so people that converted from, from uh, uh, this state where they didn't know the Lord to the place where they, uh, I'm sorry, from, from this place of being Gentiles to becoming, to uh, moving into a place in Judaism, these were never called Jews. So today, Rabbinic Judaism will say if a Gentile accepts the things of Judaism and starts following these practices, they would be called a Jew. That was never the case in the Scriptures. The Scriptures, for example, call Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess, even though she followed all the ways, and she, in fact, is in the lineage of King David, she was called Ruth the Moabitess, always, never called a Jew. And if you look back in in chapter 2, verse 10, 
It says, it says uh, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the district of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So the, it, said, it, it had a different category. So these were people who actually took on the things of Judaism, and they were called proselytes, those that converted to Judaism. So there was a baptism for that. So we associate baptism in our current day only with being baptized into Jesus Christ. But not then. There was a proselyte baptism as well, when they would come into the things of Judaism. There was also the baptism of John, John the Baptist baptized. And that was always an identification. When there was a proselyte baptism, it was baptism of identification with Judaism. When there was baptism of John the Baptist, there was identification with the kingdom of God is coming back. The kingdom of God is at hand. And there was an identification with that. And we see from the book of Acts that people who were baptized into the baptism of John had to be rebaptized into Jesus Christ. But there was another thing that it did for them that it doesn't just do for us, this baptism that they're talking about. Remember that from Matthew chapter 12 that the, the Jerusalem was doomed to be, be killed because of the... the, the uh, um, the unpardonable sin had come. And it was for that day, for those people, couldn't come upon us today. But it was for those people only. And the way they got out of it was they repented and they moved out from being with that group of people. So in about 70 AD, actually 68 AD, the Romans came and they they attacked Jerusalem and they were going to devastate it once and for all and, and wipe everybody out. In about 69 AD, the siege ceased for a period, a very short period, a few weeks or a month, the siege backed off. There were about 100,000 Messianic Jews in the city of Jerusalem at that time, and that means Jews that had received Jesus. They were willing to fight to the end with their fellow Jews. But their fellow Jews proclaimed another man to be a Messiah, and then they said, no, we can't be any part of that. And during that backing off, they recognized the words that Jesus had spoken about in the Gospels. He says, When you see the city surrounded by Gentiles, when you see this, flee. And so those 100,000 Messianic Jews actually left in about 69 AD. The siege then came back, and it wiped out the entire city. The judgment came upon that city at that time. And those about 100,000 Jews actually went to Perea, which is a city on the other side of the Jordan. So none of those who had received Jesus were killed. This is part of what they're talking about, what distinguished them when people said, all of those who have been baptized, separate yourself from us. It was this 100,000 Jews. So baptism actually physically saved them. And this is why when we read about in 1 Peter, you know, so, some folks are sometimes confused by this. If you, if you look over in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse um, 18, It says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So people read this verse and they say, oh, baptism now saves you. So in other words, you have to be baptized to be saved. The answer is no. Baptism doesn't give you spiritual salvation. Baptism gave them physical salvation. And Peter knew that this was coming and he's warning them when he's writing this book. Baptism saves you in that when you're baptized, you will be distinguished. You will identify with the Christians, with those that follow Jesus Christ, this Rabbi Jesus Christ, and you will have to flee from this rest of the group. And it says that Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. So some folks read by this, oh, Jesus Christ went to hell after he, he, uh, uh, before he rose from the dead and he preached to people in hell. That's not exactly the case. We know from, from, uh, uh, from the Gospels that there's actually uh, uh, a place that was called the bosom of Abraham, and that's where the, the poor man went. And then Lazarus, the rich man, had gone to, to uh, 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 this place of, of, of utter darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth, and he was very thirsty. And remember, there were these two places, and they could see each other, but there was a great chasm, it says in the Scriptures, between the two. Jesus went to the bosom of Abraham and took captivity captive, took those people who were in the bosom of Abraham who hadn't yet gone to heaven because nobody could prior to his death. They were in the, in, in the bosom of Abraham and he, he took them with him into heaven's glory. But he made proclamation, not to everybody who was in hell, but to a select group of people because it says, in which he made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So in other words, he made proclamation just to those people who were alive in the days of Noah while he was building the ark and mocking Noah. It says that everybody mocked him and and couldn't understand why he was doing this. Jesus made proclamation to them. He didn't bring them captive. He just made proclamation to them to confirm that what Noah had had so spoken about, has come true. Baptism saved them, the Jews of the first generation, physically, because it separated them. It separated them, and this took place then in, in, in 70 AD. The destruction of Jerusalem took place. And then after that, there's never any reference at all for baptism saving. These are the only references there to Jews. So baptism saves us that does not save us spiritually, it saved them physically. Now for us, it's an identification with Christ. And we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But for them, when they say baptized in the name of Jesus, it separated that, it distinguished that from proselyte baptism, distinguished that from, from the baptism of John the, ba- John the Baptist. And so Peter says, be baptized and turn for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he says, when you do this, you're going to receive the gift. And we went over last time the, the five different passages in the book of Acts and how they're all a little bit different. Some with laying on of hands, some not with laying on of hands. Here there's no laying on of hands. Some with speaking in tongues, some not with speaking in tongues. So there's no set pattern. What we do is we look at the clear propositional statements that give us doctrine from the teachings to the church. And we'll look at some of those in just a minute. But it was quite a productive day. In verse 41, it says, Those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And it says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, it may well have been only the twelve 
baptizing, or it may have been many more of the, hundred and tw- of the 120 who were up in the upper room baptizing. But even if it was just the 12 baptizing, you have, you have 3,000 people divided by 12 is 250 people. So each apostle would only have to baptize about 250 people. And you think, well, that couldn't all happen in, in a day. Oh, yes, it can. And I've seen baptisms go very, very quickly when a lot of people get saved. It's not this long, drawn-out thing. It's just, you know, you just move them right on through. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Down go, up you go, out you go, and then comes the next one. And you can easily do two in a minute. You can easily plow right through these things. So even if it was the twelve, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal to have to deal with that many. And, and uh, so, so even if it was one a minute, you'd have about four hours of baptizing, baptizing a piece. If it was... Two a minute, you'd have 30 seconds baptizing a piece. And some people argue that there isn't that much water in Jerusalem, and, and that's totally untrue. There's always been a lot of water in Jerusalem. If you go there today and you take a tour of the city of Jerusalem, they will bring you down into these things where you see water all over the place. And there was water running, all, and there still is water running into the cities, in, into the city of Jerusalem, all underneath that mountain. It's just full of water sources. And there were plenty of water sources, but it may not have been just the twelve. There may have been many other people baptizing. And so you can actually put them through fairly quickly. But look in verse 42. It says, it says that uh, uh, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so... You know, not from this, because this is an historical book, but from the, the propositional statements that we have throughout the scriptures, we know that this is the pattern that we are to follow. It says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. In, in 1 Timothy 4.11, it says, Command these things and teach these things that I'm teaching you. Paul commanded Timothy, who was the overseer of a, ter- of a church, to teach the apostles' teachings. The very things that I'm teaching you, you're to teach. The next thing it says, and to fellowship. In Hebrews 10.25 it says, Do not neglect the fellowship of the saints, which is the habit of some. So we are instructed through the clear propositional teachings in the book of Hebrews to not neglect the fellowship of the saints, which is the habit of some. So, So many times Christians get this wrong today. They think, I don't have to go to church, I can just watch it on TV. Well, if you are deathly ill, you can watch it on TV. Other than that, you get your rear end up and you come to church. Why? Because we're not to neglect the fellowship of the saints, which is the habit of some. We are clearly instructed to have fellowship with the saints. We are clearly instructed to be here. For me, in my life, going to church has been very important. You know, I don't say, oh, well, I guess I'll go play golf today. And skip church. I don't do that. Or say, I, I guess I'll go fishing today. And skip church. The only time that I'll miss church is because if I absolutely have to, because I have to be someplace on a Monday overseas, and I might be in the air on a Sunday. But it's very rare. And I've taught my children, we are going to get to church. And you would be amazed at the things that will try to distract you from church on a Sunday morning. A couple has a little kid, and they think, oh, this little kid... Uh, you, you, you know, because, because he's, he's thrown up his milk just before we left for church, we can't go to church today because it spilled on my clothing. Wipe your clothing off and get to church. 
There are lots of things that will want to discourage you from getting to church. You think, oh, well, I've woken up a little late. Well, hurry up and get to church. You, you work hard to maintain a fellowship with the saints, just as you work hard on being under the apostles' teachings. So, learning from the Word of God is one way of learning, but we are to expose ourselves to the teachings of others through the Word of God. And so we're to be under teaching, we're to be in fellowship. This is part of the practice that we are instructed to do. The third thing is the breaking of bread. We are taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we are to break bread. We are to have the Lord's Supper. Let's turn there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we see, you know, you know why, why do I make such a big deal out of this thing? You know, what's the big deal? You know, take the Lord's Supper, you know, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. I just want to obey the Word of God. Is there a big deal in obeying the Word of God? You know, what's the big deal? Why should we obey the Word of God? You know, this is what it says. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, let's start reading from, from uh, verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for better, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. There m- for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So, look, Paul is reproving the Corinthian church. So he's got, he's got this word for them. And now in verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So in the reproof, he's saying to them, when you meet together, you're not gathering together for the Lord's Supper. You know, they were arguing to him, no, we're gathering together for the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, you're not. You are not. In verse 21, For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So look what he says. He says in verse 21, when you come together, you come together because you're hungry, because you want to feed your face. Well, I I thought that's why you come together to eat. He's saying, no, the Lord's Supper is not the time when you fill your belly. The Lord's Supper is different. He says, in your eating, each one comes and takes his own supper first. For one is hungry and another is drunk. Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? So what he's saying is, you're coming together for the Lord's Supper and grabbing all this food. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about. If you're hungry, eat at home. The Lord's Supper is something different. It's something different that we practice in the church. You know, there's a time when you invite people over to eat. So if I invite you over to my house for lunch, what do I say? I say, come over to lunch. I, say, I don't say, on your way and coming over to our house for lunch, stop at McDonald's and fill up. And then come over for lunch. That wouldn't make sense, would it? Why? Because when I'm inviting you over for lunch, I'm inviting you over to eat. To fulfill your hunger. He's saying to them, you're to do something different here. You're to be doing something different. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, this is not the time to fill your face. This is the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. But when you are judged, we... But, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so you will not come together to, for judgment. So you see, he's saying we're not talking about a meal here in the sense of filling up. If you're hungry, you eat at home. The meal you see here that we have for you, this is for filling up. This is what you fill up on. The Lord's Supper is something different. So he presupposes that you have an understanding here. The Lord's Supper is something different and he's reproving them for not understanding. The Lord's Supper isn't merely a fellowship meal. The Lord's Supper is something different. And he says, when you take of this cup, he, 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 says, he says, you eat and drink Whoever eats and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, some people will say, well, I, I just don't feel right, I'm not prepared, I can't partake of the Lord's Supper. But that's totally unscriptural. Because it says, examine yourself and let him eat and drink. Let a man examine himself, and so let. But let a man examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You are to eat of it. So examining oneself doesn't take, you know, six months of beating yourself with a chain, saying I'm ready now to take the Lord's supper. No, it's not that. Examine yourself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You are to partake, but examine yourself and see if there's anything there. He says. He says, uh, um, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So in other words, if we don't look in ourselves and say, Lord, is there something here that I've participated in this week that I need to, to repent of? Then you repent of it right there, just like that, just between you and the Lord. And then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It says, for this reason, there are many among you who are weak and sick and a number sleep. So... To eat and drink in an unworthy manner causes weakness. How much more to not eat and drink at all? To, to disobey by not eating and drinking at all. And then he says, for this reason, there are many among you who are weak and sick and a number sleep. So in other words, by not partaking or partaking in an unworthy manner without examining oneself, it makes us weak spiritually, makes us sick, and may even cause us to die. I mean, that's pretty serious. So if we say, well, I'll just refrain because it's too dangerous. Well, what's the penalty then? Because it tells us to eat and drink of the cup. For this reason, the many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. 
I mean, this is wonderful. If I just say, Lord, is there something here? And if you bring something to my remembrance, I repent of it, I don't have to go through any judgment. And in fact, it says believers are not going to go through judgment, but they will go through discipline. But we can even avoid the discipline if we repent. Now, that sounds good to me. So for the things I do wrong, I will be disciplined for. But if I learn to repent of them, either there's no discipline or the discipline is much less. Because he says, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let them eat at home. So he speaks about, we've got this clear teaching in the scriptures that we're to partake of the Lord's Supper. We are to be doing this sort of thing. This is a good thing. It's a good thing to have a time where we just say, you know, let, let's, uh, let's just get before the Lord and, and, and ask the Lord to search our hearts. You say, well, I don't need to come to church to do that. Yeah, that's right. You don't need to come to church to do that. You can ask the Lord to search your heart without having the Lord's Supper. But how often do we forget to do it? But when you take the Lord's Supper, you remember that you know, there's a judgment here. There's a discipline here waiting me. And then we remember, gulp, I better, I better ask the Lord to search my heart. It is a good thing. It's a good thing to do. And this is what it says back in Acts. It says that they were doing. For the breaking of bread, which we may say the breaking of bread was the fellowship meal, but Paul clearly teaches there is a fellowship meal and then there's the Lord's Supper. When you get together, take the Lord's Supper, because what you're doing now, you're not taking the Lord's Supper, he says. You're just filling your faces. And then he says in, in, back in Acts chapter, chapter 2, verse 42, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so we know that we are to pray. In 1 Timothy 2.8, it says, instruct all men that they are to pray. So the, these that we see they're doing are confirmed for us in clear propositional statements in the teachings of the apostles. You, you see the difference. These are clear propositional statements. So, devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. We are to be under teaching. We are to be devoting ourselves to the teachings, to fellowship. We are not to neglect the fellowship of the saints. And, it, and you, it doesn't have to just be Sunday. In fact, it's good if it's not just Sunday. You participate in campus groups, or you're with people at a midweek service, or you're with other believers. This is a good thing to have fellowship. And the fellowship was always around some sort of Christian activity. And to the breaking of bread and to prayer. These are the practices of the church. In verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as one might have need. As anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, that first preaching there were 3,000, but there were many more. Every day there were more added. So the church was building up rapidly. And it, it says that, that they were in the temple with one mind. So they had no problem going to the temple. In fact, this preaching took place in the temple compound. 
Jesus often taught in the temple. The temple compound was quite large. And you could have one rabbi teaching over here and another rabbi teaching over there and Jesus teaching over here. And, and this was very common. And in fact, they felt no discord in being believers in Jesus Christ and in going to the temple for teachings. The apostles would teach in the temple compound. There was no problem with that. It was actually quite open. And, and we're going to see more of this. In, in fact, in the next chapter, Peter and John are walking into the temple compound for their hour of prayer. They had no problem continuing on in, in the traditional hours of prayer, which were at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. were their mandatory hours of prayer. It wasn't scriptural for them to do that, but it was rabbinic for them to do that, and they continued in those practices. And then they had an optional time of prayer at noon. And... and uh, um, If you look, it says in verse 40, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. You know, the pastor preached a message today talking about how um, what really draws people is when they see believers together reaching out to them and, and having fellowship together. And that's really true. I'll tell you, I grew up as a Jew. When I went to college, I had no intention of, of uh, changing that at all. I had no intention of becoming a Christian when I went to college. But I started meeting these folks that at the time always called themselves born-again Christians. Lots of them I was meeting. I had never met any of these folks. And then I was meeting lots of them in college, and I used to see them eating together in, in, in the cafeteria there in the dormitory. And just groups of them, and, and they'd you know, bow their head and pray over their meal, and they'd, they'd start talking and laughing together. And what was amazing to me is their laughing was never at anyone else's expense. What I had seen is if there was a group of people laughing, somebody was really hurting. And I had been in my life on that hurting end. And all of us have been on that hurting end. And I saw that. And I said, these people are really different. It was the fellowship they had together, the joy and the sincerity of heart that they had together that made me open to their message. So that, you know, when they came to my room and they wanted to share with me the things of Jesus Christ, I was open to it because I had seen them. I had seen their behavior. What we have, what we have is fellowship, is where we get together and have meals together. You know, the world really does not have Sometimes if we grow up in this, we can think that, oh, the whole world is like this, you know, there's nothing unusual. I'll tell you, you take an unbeliever and you set them in the midst of believers having a fellowship meal where they're enjoying one another, they, they recognize that something about this is really different. That there's a sincerity here that they had not seen. What we have in this is a treasure. And sometimes we can forget it if we grow up in a Christian home. It says in verse 44, All those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Then if you go down uh, um, to verse verse, uh, 34 of chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them, For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as anyone had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, 
by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. People were selling their property and laying it at the apostles' feet and everything was distributed. So maybe that should be the pattern for the church because it's here in the book of Acts. You know, there are rich people in the body of Christ who are tremendous blessings to the body of Christ. And I've known several rich families in this church who are tremendous blessings. And the last thing that I want them to do is to sell everything they have and distribute it and then have them go into poverty because they'll have no more resources to bless people. You never see this again in the book of Acts after the beginning of chapter 5. Never again do you see this in any of the other churches except what happened here in the church of Jerusalem. And many people will say generally when they have no money, rich people ought to sell everything and give it to the poor. Poor people have a habit of saying that. And they'll take these verses as their basis for that. But remember, this is an historical book. Let's see what the clear propositional statements were, and let's see the outcome of this. The outcome of this behavior in the book of Acts never extended beyond the beginning of Acts chapter 5. Never again do you see it. It actually caused the church in Jerusalem to become impoverished. And Paul used to go out, and he used to have to go out and gather up offerings from other Gentile churches. He used to go and gather up offerings for the church in Jerusalem. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 3, it says, you know, gather up an offering so that we can take that offering to the church in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church became impoverished and was dependent upon other churches for its survival. And so what is the teaching to rich people? Is the teaching to rich people to sell everything you have and give it to the poor? Let's see what the teaching to rich people is. Look in in, uh, 1 Peter... uh, I'm sorry, in... in, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. So you got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, and then Timothy. I think that's the order. Isn't that the order? Colossians and then Timothy. So 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Here's the instruction to rich people. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Never does he say, tell them to sell everything and distribute it to the poor. The instruction to rich people, the clear propositional statement, the doctrine that we have as believers is do this. Instruct rich people, the people who are rich in this world, in this present age, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on their riches, but to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. And in doing this, they're going to store up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future. So they're going to have this huge mansion in heaven awaiting them because of all the good works they've done with their money. That they are to do good works and to be generous and share. And I know rich Christian families that do exactly this. They take their money. 
and they come to me, they say, how can we do something for the college students? And they, they'll go out and they'll, they see mission, missionaries in need and they buy them a car. You know, very few of us can just go out and buy a car for somebody. But there are people who can do that in the church. And they do that sort of thing. Rich people who know how to manage their money and love the Lord are a tremendous blessing. The last thing you want to do is take a poor person and give them a lot of money. They don't know how to manage it and they lose it. Look at all the the, the folks that win lotteries. They become impoverished. You give them this chunk of money, they don't know how to manage it, they start living like a millionaire and boom, it's gone. But rich people who know how to manage their money are a blessing and a treasure to the church. We see this practice here in the book of Acts, and it's easy to look at this and say, this is what we ought to do. No, the church became impoverished. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going around and taking up offerings and sending it to the impoverished church in Jerusalem. There may have been another reason why this was happening in the church in Jerusalem, because in Acts chapter 8, the persecution started, and it said all believers other than the apostles had to flee from Jerusalem. And so they were going to lose all their land anyway. All their possessions anyway, because they had to flee. Either they were thrown in prison and they had to flee. So maybe God was putting it on their heart. Just get rid of it all because you're going to lose it all anyway. Sell it all off. But never again do you see this practice. What we are taught, and some of you are going to grow up and become quite wealthy, become quite rich. What is the command to you? Be rich in good works. Be generous. Always looking for a chance to be generous. But not to sell everything you have and give it away so you have no more means to make money. I love those rich people and I pray they make a lot more money. So they have the ability to give even more. Those are the people I want to see rich. Not the stingy people. I want to see those people who are rich in good works get more. And you learn this practice actually now in your lives. You think, well, why should I give a tithe? You know, I only get $50 a week. $50 a month. Well, it's very easy to compute 10%. Alright? And you give that 10% and you will learn not to be stingy. And that way God sees that and He says, hey, look at that guy. He's pretty generous. Maybe I'll bless him with more. And that is a good way to be blessed with more. Learn not to be stingy. There is nowhere in the New Testament where it says we're to give a tithe. Nowhere. And I know pastors love to quote that, and they'll quote all sorts of stuff, and they say, well, tithe predates the law. It did. But it wasn't a law. It was Abraham decided to give a tenth portion. But it was never a commandment. It was to Israel. But in the New Testament, the pattern we see is to be generous. In fact, a 10% is pretty stingy, actually. 10% should just be the beginning. But there's no command of what amount you have to give. It's up to you. But remember, 10% is a very stingy amount. What if you're to, you know, give give $10 to your child and say, be generous with this, my child. The child gives $1 of it and goes out and spends $9 on candy. You think, this kid just doesn't get it. And that's what it is with God and us. You know, 10%, 10% is a place to start. But it's something we do, and it teaches us to live within our means. You know what happens if we don't give the 10%? My experience from what I've seen 
is that it costs us 110% to live on what we want to live on. We end up spending 10% more than what we get, and the debt just increases over the years. So it actually teaches us to live within our means as we're generous. But this is what we're taught, to be generous. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you for your teachings and for your grace that keep us following you, that keep us reflecting on you. Thank you, Lord, for your teachings concerning money, concerning prayer, concerning fellowship, concerning the Lord's Supper, concerning the teachings of the Word of God. Father, thank you that you teach us, that you care enough about us, and that you see our every move, that you know every thought of our hearts. Lord, thank you. Lord, I pray for these young people, that you teach them your ways and build them up in you. In the name of Jesus, amen.